Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Hey, welcome to another Conspiracy Unlimited Plus episode, a commercial-free offering for premium subscribers, and thanks so much for your patronage. It's hard to believe, but this year, September 19th to be exact, marks the 60th anniversary of the most famous alien abduction case in the history of ufology. Betty and Barney Hill were driving home along Route 3 to their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, when they noticed strange lights in the sky. What transpired over the next several hours would irrevocably change their lives, and also the life of their young niece, Kathleen Martin. Today, 60 years later, Kathleen is a leading UFO and abduction researcher, author, and lecturer. Her educational background in the social sciences has shaped her interest in scientific ufology. Extensive research and investigation into alien abduction has convinced her that some alien abductions are real. Together with the late Stanton Friedman, the grandfather of ufology, Kathleen wrote Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. The 60th anniversary edition is due out in April. Hey Kathleen, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. It's great to be back with you. We're coming up on the 60th anniversary this fall of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. Um, how, how has that time gone for you? Has it gone quickly? Does it seem like, uh, like another lifetime ago? It seems like it has flown by. I can't believe that it is 60 years already. My gosh, I was 13 when it occurred and uh, heard about it the day they arrived home and it's hard to believe that all of this time has passed you know betty always said to me when i was younger you just wait until you grow older when you're younger it seems like the the days are uh, 48 hours long instead of 24 time goes so slowly but as you grow older time just flies by it's true. So, and she was right. Yes, it's so true. So did you spend a lot of time with your aunt and uncle um, as, as a child, like before the abduction event? Yes, I did. Um, you know, we were a close family. They lived about 20 miles away from my childhood home. And my grandparents uh, had a farm across the street. And uh, Betty and Barney visited at least once or twice a week. So uh, we were a close family. And I just loved having Betty and Barney come down, as well as my other aunts and uncles. But Betty and Barney always showed a special interest in the children of the family. we always uh, kept our schoolwork that was passed back during the week to show them and to be praised for it and, and report cards. Uh, if we were selling magazines for the school, they would encourage us and give us hints on being good salespeople, uh, encourage us to run for school office. Uh, it was just wonderful having them as uh, a close aunt and uncle. They, they took us out to dinner and, and taught us proper table manners for eating in a restaurant. They told us that one day we would need that, that it would be important because we would have important jobs and we might have to dine out with uh, business associates. So uh, we needed to learn very good table manners. That was just, you know, a little example of, of what they did, but we, uh, we thoroughly enjoyed it. And were they, um, were they at all interested in ufology? No, they had never mentioned it as far as I knew. Um, I know that my, the day that Betty phoned my childhood home and was talking to my mother, when I arrived home from school, that was September 20th, 1961, um, my mother hung up the phone and told me that Betty and Barney had seen a flying saucer the night before. It had come so close that they were afraid they had been contaminated by cosmic rays or 
uh, ionizing radiation. And uh, so we were concerned. And uh, that was when my mother said, told me that she had had a sighting around 1957 or 1958. Uh, she didn't know the precise date, but she was uh, grocery shopping. She went grocery shopping every Friday night. And another of my aunts went with her. And on this particular night, as they were driving home, uh, they saw a, a huge cigar-shaped craft hovering over a field. And there were smaller ones flying around and into the, the larger one. And uh, they ran to a home of uh, someone they knew. And the family went out and they also observed this. And uh, that was the first I'd ever heard about flying saucers. Mm. <laughs> so that was, uh, I was very surprised. That, that day is still... Uh, imprinted in my brain, I guess, because it was so shocking. And I learned things that I hadn't known before. So September 19th, 1961, your aunt and uncle are returning from a road trip. They were in Niagara Falls, right? For a little holiday? Yes, they were. Uh, Barney surprised Betty with this trip. I had gone to Niagara Falls with Betty's sister, another sister, and her husband and my cousin, and uh, came home with photographs and I enjoyed the trip so much. I showed the photographs to Betty and Barney and was telling them about the trip and and Barney asked Betty if she'd ever been there and she said that she had not. So uh, she had a vacation from her job as a social worker for the state of New Hampshire and he surprised her with a trip to Niagara Falls. So they were uh, traveling from Niagara Falls up through Toronto and spent the second night of their trip about, oh, probably um, 112 miles from Montreal to the west of Montreal. And then uh, they were well rested. They slept in. They had a big breakfast and drove through Montreal sightseeing. They had a terrific time. They thought they'd spend the night in Montreal. But as they were going to the outskirts looking for a motel that would accept get, uh, pets, because they had their dog, Delcy, with them, right. a little dachshund. So they uh, were looking for a motel on the outskirts of the city. And Barney ended up on the highway that led back to New Hampshire uh, through Vermont. And so he continued driving and he said, oh, the heck with it. Uh, let's just go along our way. And if we feel tired, we'll stop for the night. We'll just see the sights along the way. And that's what they did. And uh, so they they stopped, they ate, they, they had a great time, and, and then they entered New Hampshire and decided to stop at a restaurant for a little bite to eat and uh, some coffee, so they did that. They left at 10.05 and headed south. Barney, at that point, was intent on arriving home. He estimated that uh, he would be at home uh, sometime around two to three in the morning. And he was, it was a bright light night, so he could drive above the speed limit. He was driving about 50 miles an hour, he said. And uh, they were going through upstate New Hampshire on, when uh, Betty saw a new light in the sky. And what attracted her to this is that instead of moving like a falling star, it uh, traveled upward as if it was on the ground and, and was traveling up in an arc. And so she was wondering what that was. It was very strange. And it uh, apparently saw Betty and Barney and it, was, it came in closer and closer. 
and they stopped a couple of times to look at it as it was uh, becoming very close. And then finally, uh, they had passed through Franconia Notch, and that is a beautiful tourist area in New Hampshire. Uh, it's uh, There's nothing through the notch uh, except for the Hugh Gallon Bridge, which is the bridge that Betty and Barney traveled on. The new highway, uh, Route 93, was uh, paved over the old road, but uh, the Hugh Gallon Bridge is not part of 93 anymore. So if you really want to see where Betty and Barney uh, entered Franconia Notch and saw a craft above Cannon Mountain, which was straight ahead, you have to go to the Hugh Gallon Bridge. And in fact, if anyone's listening and they would like uh, to follow the route that Betty and Barney took that night, they can go to my website at Kathleen-Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N, dot com and print out a self-guided tour that I wrote. And uh, you can go along that route. You can stop and see uh, the a marker that the state of New Hampshire erected. It's a historical marker in front of the Indian Had Resort. And uh, it tells the uh, route that Betty and Barney took and what they saw at each stop. Right, right. So, so, so there are a lot of. Yeah, oh, the, no, that's um, I'm so delighted that they've actually you know commemorated that with uh, with markers and so forth. I was just thinking, you know, as you're telling me this story about how how everything would have been different had they found a, a, a motel or a hotel that took pets. Everything would have changed. Yes, but you know they. There were hotels that would take pets along the way and in New Hampshire. Um, but in fact, when Betty and Barney left Franconia Notch and they're now in the area where there were cabins and motels and tourist attractions, uh, Betty uh, looked at the Indian Head Resort cabins at that time. It's a beautiful big resort now. I love staying there. And uh, as she's looking at that, she saw a man in the, the screen door lighting up a cigarette. He was smoking a cigarette. And uh, she thought to herself, you know, we could end all of this right now if we just stopped for the night. And then she thought to herself, but I don't want to stop. I'm too curious. I want to see more. And so she didn't even mention that to Barney and they were driving along the craft is coming in closer and closer and she uh, tells Barney that she wants him to stop again so that she can get a good close look at this craft and so he's looking for a place to pull over when suddenly the craft shoots ahead and stops dead stop in the air about 200 feet in the air over the highway and if Barney hadn't stopped his car in the middle of the highway that uh, they would have been directly underneath that craft and uh, that would have changed what had occurred too because Barney would never have gotten out of the car and uh, observed them in uh, a field <laughs> the field next to where he stopped the car, they would have just been taken up car and all into the craft. But uh, that didn't happen. They uh, stopped in the middle of the road. Barney grabbed his binoculars and stepped out of the car and looked up at this craft. He stepped back uh, to get a better view. And when he did, the craft moved to an adjacent field and descended even lower. Now it was within a hundred feet of Barney. And you know, he was a confirmed skeptic. He, he could not believe what his eyes were seeing. He was suffering from cognitive dissonance. He was saying it can't be, pulling the binoculars down, shaking his head, looking again, and still he was observing 
figures dressed in shiny black uniforms behind a row of windows on this uh, oval craft. And suddenly, all except for one turned in unison and walked to what appeared to be a panel on the, the back wall of the corridor that seemed to encircle this craft. And Barney could now see them from the tops of their heads down to their knees. And he saw their arms go up. And when this occurred, little red lights on extensions started to come out of the side of the craft because it was oval so it really didn't have sides but <laughs> on two sides he could see those red lights uh, sliding out and then something started to drop down out of the bottom of the craft he thought it was a rope uh, but we know now that it wasn't a rope it was a carrier beam that uh, these entities right. uh, ride down uh, and and bring humans up through was there any so, was there any uh, at that point any sort of communication nonverbal communication with these entities were, were they looking right at him were they motioning to him was there any telepathic communication the entity uh, standing at the window of the craft uh, was moving or uh, doing something that frightened Barney terribly. I think it was his body language that Barney immediately felt that he was about to be captured, he said, quote, like a bug in a net, close quote. And this is when he knew that he had to run as fast as he could to escape that craft and those entities. He pulled the binoculars down from his eyes and went charging back to the car in a hysterical state, screaming to Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to be captured. Thus the name of my book, Captured, right. the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, book I wrote with Stanton T. Friedman. And so, uh, as he was uh, entering the car, he looked up and he noticed that that craft was now coming in his direction. He started speeding down the highway. He'd left the car running, the door open, the lights on, and he's speeding down the highway. And he said to Betty, roll down your window and look up. Uh, I think that they're, they might be above us. And so... Betty rolled down the window and looked up, and her voice seemed a little frightened when, <laughs> when she was doing this, but then she, uh, she rolled the window up and said, no, Barney, I don't see them. And she later realized that she didn't see them because all she saw was blackness. She didn't see any lights. They were, it was directly over their car. And it's funny, later in life, Betty, you know, she had a very good sense of humor. And after she had uh, told, talked about this for probably the millionth time, she used to say that she rolled down the window and stretched her body out, and waved and yelled, hi, boys. But uh, <laughs> that's not really what happened. It was Betty's humor coming out. Right, right. And so they're racing towards Portsmouth at this time to get home? Portsmouth? Yes, uh, they wanted to to arrive home. They, you know, between two and three in the morning, and uh, had decided that they weren't going to stop for the night. They were close enough to home, and so he's racing down the highway. But suddenly, he and Betty hear a series of code-like buzzing sounds that seem to be striking the trunk of the vehicle. The car vibrated. And a tingling sensation passed through their bodies. And as if only a moment had passed, they found themselves 35 miles down the highway with some memories. They remembered finding themselves on a dirt road with tall trees all around. They remembered a roadblock but they couldn't remember precisely where it was. 
and they remembered observing a huge fiery orb that seemed to be sitting on the ground. And they heard a second series of beeps, now 35 miles down the highway. And uh, Betty said to Barney, now do you believe in flying saucers? And he said, oh, Betty, don't be ridiculous. That's not a flying saucer. I can prove it to you. Look, I'm going to make that sound with this car. He stopped the car. He drove from side to side. He did everything he could, but he could not create that sound. And uh, so they just drove on home. They they really wanted uh, human a human connection. And they were looking for a police officer to report this to. They were looking for a coffee shop that might be open. Everything was closed. They didn't encounter a police officer. There were even very few cars on the road at that time of year. It was the off-season. It's a lot busier in New Hampshire now during the off-season, but it was sparsely populated right, in those right. days. When they arrived home, and they were their ETA was about 2.30, quarter to 3, what, what time was it? It was 5.15. They lost three hours, three and a half hours. Yeah, or or maybe maybe only two because they'd stopped and right, you know, right. to look and, and that sort of thing. But they lost at least two hours, maybe more. And when they arrived home, uh, things were not as they had expected them to be. Uh, Barney got out of the car and went directly into the house to the bathroom and uh, he started removing his shoes and as he looked down he noticed that the tops of his best dress shoes were so deeply scraped that he ended up having to buy new shoes. He was a meticulous dresser and he would not uh, go out in public with a suit and, and those shoes on that were so scraped. Uh, Betty walked the dog and then she went into the house and she said to Barney, uh, don't bring the luggage in now. Let's do that later. And when you do bring it in, put it on the porch. I don't want it in this house. Uh, they looked at their watches and neither watch was working. So they, Betty set hers at 5.15 and that's how how I know that they arrived at 5.15 because I have that watch. It never ran again. Wow. Nor did Barney's. And uh, they were so perplexed. They drew uh, sketches of what they had observed. Uh, Betty went to remove her dress. They were going to sleep for a few hours. And the zipper uh fabric was torn, an inch tear in that, and a two-inch tear in the stitching along the zipper. And the hem was torn down on her dress. The dress was torn from waist to hemline. So many perplexing things. You don't, that doesn't happen just sitting in a vehicle. Right, as right. As a tourist or, or getting out, you know, to, to do some sightseeing. And then they slept after they took long showers. They felt very dirty, much more than just road crud. Uh, they said they felt clammy, kind of this wet, dirty feeling. They took long showers, and they were also concerned that they might have been contaminated by the craft, by the uh, rays coming right. from the craft. At, at what point did they notice these strange concentric circles on the trunk of the car? After they slept for a few hours, uh, they got up and Betty called my mother. Um, Barney said to her, don't tell anyone. No good can come of this. So Betty walked to the phone and, and <laughs> called my mother, her sister. Why not tell your sister? So uh, Betty phoned my mother and uh, she, uh, my mother phoned a neighbor of ours, a physicist, to ask what 
she and Barney should do. And for some reason, the physicist said, if you have a compass, take it out to the car and see how the needle reacts. Now, years and years ago, uh, people were saying it was to detect radiation, radioactivity. It, it is not. Compass doesn't do that. It was to detect a magnetic field. And she went outside with that compass and saw new shiny spots on the car that hadn't been there the day before. She held the compass over them and the needle whirled, indicating that there was a magnetic field there at the back of the car. But as she moved it down the side of the car, the needle dropped down. So it was just on that rear portion of the car. How long did those rings last on the car? I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, you know, Betty said that she thought they had faded away over the winter months, but then Betty's daughter and uh, was married at that point, and her husband was in the Air Force, and they bought the car from Betty, and then they were stationed at another base and took the car with them, and Betty's daughter believed that there were spots that remained so I don't have a definitive answer on that, and nobody else does either. So a few days after the incident, they, I guess they reached out to Peace Air Force Base. They wanted to report it, or Betty did anyway. Yes. Well, what happened was that Betty remained on the phone calling back and forth with, with my mother, and my father's best friend had been the chief of police in the neighboring town of Newton, next to the, the town that we lived in. And every night on his way home from work, he stopped for a cup of coffee and a little visit. So uh, on this particular night, my mother and father told him about... Uh, Betty's and Barney's sighting, and and Buzz said, that his, it was his name, Buzz, and he said, well, Pease Air Force Base notified the police stations uh, that if anyone reported a UFO sighting, they should notify Pease Air Force Base. So uh, Betty and Barney decided that, yes, they would uh, make a report to Pease, and uh, they made the report, I believe, on the 21st. They arrived home on the 20th, made the report on the 21st, and uh, Pease Air Force Base had a very interesting sighting, radar sighting, of an unusual craft at 2.14 a.m., uh, the, the night that Betty and Barney were taken. And uh, there was also another base in North Concord, Vermont, that had a, a very large, erratically moving craft on its radar earlier in the night. They wrote it off as a weather balloon, but my investigation indicated that it was traveling against the wind. But, you know, it was extra work for all of those Air Force officers, and uh, they like to avoid publicity and avoid additional work. So didn't uh, they write it off as a misidentification of of Jup the planet Jupiter, which was also in the night sky that night? They uh, they said that it was a number of different things. Uh, they thought that it might have been uh, first a uh, advertising light. I don't know what an advertising light would be doing in Franconia Notch um, with, in the off-season with no, no towns around that had a movie theater that warranted an, an advertising light. Uh, they, they might have said it was Jupiter at one point. Uh, that doesn't uh, really uh, explain the, the fact that Betty and Barney wrote that this craft moved in a zigzag pattern. It moved in a stair-step pattern. It ascended and descended vertically. Uh, advertising lights and planets don't do that. Right, right. It doesn't explain anything, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> so suddenly and understandably, um, Betty is very interested in UFOs. Doesn't she read a book by 
um, Major Donald Kehoe at that point on the subject? Yes, she goes to the Portsmouth Public Library and takes out the first book she has ever read on flying saucers, and it was written by Major Donald Kehoe who was the uh, director of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And NICAP was located in Washington, D.C., and it was uh, made up of a lot of uh, military people, ex-military people, CIA, and a few scientists and a few members of the public. Um, But it was very heavily to the military, it seemed. And uh, so... She made the report to Donald Kehoe, who had been in the military, Major Kehoe, and uh, he assigned an investigation to Walter Webb. Now, Walter Webb was an astronomer at the Hayden Planetarium in Boston, but he was interested in UFOs. In fact, uh, Alan Hynek, as you know, was the astronomical consultant for Blue Project Blue Book. Well, uh, Walter Webb, at one point, when Alan Hynek was at Harvard University, uh, worked on the satellite tracking program that uh, Alan Hynek was working on. So I should say Dr. Hynek. <laughs> And uh, so Walter Webb was the person who did the investigation. He didn't have a tape recorder. Uh, He didn't think to borrow one. He said that he thought he was just going to take a sighting report. I interviewed him uh, years later. And he said if he'd known that it was more than just a sighting report, he would have borrowed one of those huge reel-to-reel tape recorders that they had in those days. They were about the size of a picnic cooler. (laughs) And uh, so he took notes, copious notes, and he interviewed Betty and Barney separately and then together. And uh, then he went back to Boston and he wrote his report for NICAP. And Betty and Barney insisted upon confidentiality. They never wanted this story to be made public. Uh, They had important positions uh, that they didn't want to lose their jobs, their livelihood. So uh, they uh, insisted that it remain confidential. And uh, they told they spoke with scientists. Uh, two months later, they spoke. It was November. They spoke with uh, Robert Homan and C. D. Jackson, who were NICAP members, and both were scientists who worked for IBM. And uh, they were extraordinarily interested in this, and were right actually writing a paper on uh, UFOs to present at a conference. So uh, they interviewed Betty and Barney privately, too, confidentially. And also uh, there was a a former member of the CIA who was stationed at Pease Air Force Base who became a close friend of Barney's, uh, too. They used to play uh, racquetball, I think it was, together at the gym and uh, at the base and had a good time together. And they told the family, but we were sworn to secrecy. They told their close friends and they were sworn to secrecy. And uh, time went by. At what point did they decide uh, that they would undergo a regression? And, And then why did it Take so many. It was like three three years, nearly after the incident, that they underwent regression, right? Yes, it was uh, over two years. And uh, what happened was, as my father was sitting quietly with Barney in the living room, a couple of days after that occurred, um, Barney said he had developed uh, a block for what their faces looked like. He knew they were somehow not human, but he had kind of developed uh, a block. And my father said, well, you should find a good hypnotist. So Betty and Barney uh, met another man from Pease Air Force Base 
Ben Sweat, who was uh, also an officer, and he was a hypnotist. But Ben Sweat told me that when he looked at Betty and Barney, uh, or, or Barney, as Barney was uh, ta talking to him about what had happened, he knew that he did not want to hypnotize him because he was an amateur hypnotist and Barney's face was twitching. So he knew that there was uh, some, some deep trauma um, that Barney was experiencing. And finally, Betty and Barney found uh, a psychiatrist who did hypnosis down in northern Massachusetts, and they went to see him. Dr. Simon. And, no, this no? is a different one before Dr. Simon. Ah. Yes, a different one. And this one uh, said, well, uh, I don't want to hypnotize you now. This was early on. He said, give it some time. And the memories will come forth. And so uh, they gave it some time and they did remember more. And then finally, with all of this going on and uh, it troubling Barney so much, he developed what we now call uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And he was referred to Dr. Benjamin Simon. Dr. Simon had uh, set up the psychiatric unit at the Mason General Hospital on Long Island during World War II to treat uh, combat veterans who were coming back to the United States uh, with shell shock, with combat fatigue, with conversion hysteria. Um, and uh, he was very successful. The other Psychiatrists were not as successful as Dr. Simon. He developed a special hypnotic technique using deep trance hypnosis where he uh, could get the whole story. People would not block uh, the, the deep-seated causes of, of uh, what had caused this physiological problem when there was no physical damage. Um, so um, he treated, for example, a veteran who came uh, back from the war who was blinded, he, uh, but his eyes hadn't been burned, they hadn't been injured, but uh, he was still blind. And Dr. Simon started to speak with him about, you know, what happened. Well, he had seen his best friend killed in front of him. And so Dr. Simon thought, well, now see. And he could not see still. So Dr. Simon went deeper and into his past, started going backwards. What happened a week before? Oh, nothing special. What happened two weeks before? Oh, I received a letter from my sweetheart, and she informed me that she was breaking off our relationship. And Dr. Simon realized that this was so devastating to this soldier that he had to work through that trauma. And so he did work through it. And at the end of the movie, you see him out playing a game of baseball and then boarding the bus uh, to uh, go back home. And the movie was a John Huston propaganda film called Let There Be Light. Yes. So uh, Barney found the probably the best neuropsychiatrist that he could possibly find. Dr. Simon had a tremendous reputation. Um, the, the president of uh, the Psychiatric Association taught at Harvard, um, had taught at Yale. So uh, and was in private practice at one time. He owned his own private psychiatric hospital. But when Barney and Betty saw him, he was it was later in life. And he was in private practice. And uh, Betty went down with Barney in December of 1963 and uh, for their consultation, Barney's consultation, actually. And this is when Betty 
told Dr. Simon that she would like to be seen as well. So he devised a plan where uh, he would uh, see them separately. They could come together, but one would sit in a soundproof room with loud music playing so that they could not hear the other one. And Dr. Simon would reinstate amnesia at the end of each session uh, until all of the hypnosis sessions were finished. And then he would bring the two of them together to listen to the hypnosis tapes together. And then he would work with them as they uh, worked through uh, any anxiety that they had and came to understand what they had both uh, stated to integrate this uh, and uh, hopefully to um, no longer have the anxiety that they had previously. And also to corroborate, right? Because it's that's kind of the classic interrogation. You separate the witnesses to see if they're telling the same story. Absolutely. And later on, he, he admitted there was another reason, too. He didn't realize it when he spoke with Betty and Barney that December day. But uh, at times... There was so much emotional uh, outpouring from Betty and Barney that he uh, thought that it would increase their level of anxiety if they remembered all of that at once. In fact, they did both have nightmares during that time, during uh, the hypnosis sessions. As so they were working through it. So tell me what uh, Barney's um, regression, what he recalled, what he saw, what he relived. Well, Barney recalled and relived everything that I have said to this point. But then he uh, had a memory of, uh, he said, I'm driving and driving and driving. And I made a turn, and I don't know why I made that turn. And I drive ahead, and there's a red-orange light, and there are men standing in the road. Is there an accident? No, there isn't an accident. Those are the men that I saw when I was standing in the field. And then he said... Uh, to Betty, because Betty wasn't in the room, but he told Betty that that's what he thought they were. And uh, he then opened his door because they they divided into two groups of three, and three went to Barney's door, and uh, he put his he opened the door, he put his foot out on the ground, and he was intercepted. He knew that he shouldn't fight because he feared that he would be harmed if he did. So he was kind of uh, in in a trance or playing dead, I don't know which, but he said that uh, he felt as if he were floating and that only the toes of his shoes were bumping along the rocks. Ah, there's the scuffing. Yes. And then he felt them slide up a ramp and was taken into a room. And uh, there were smaller beings in that room. There were two sizes. The smaller ones we know today are... Uh, the it's kind of the police force or the guards on the craft. Uh, they supervise, they act as assistants, and they make sure you don't get off that craft with anything that belongs to them. And so they went in, they put him on a table, and he was just lying there for a long, long time. They had intercepted Betty as she tried to run into the woods and hide and they took her down this path too. Um, and as they wanted to take her onto the craft, she fought for her life. She didn't know what was going to happen to her. They kept reassuring her that she wouldn't be harmed. 
and Barney as well, that they only wanted to do a sim few simple tests and then they'd be released to go along their way. But she feared that she would never see her family again. And so she fought for her life. She kicked one of those entities. And in the process of doing that, she tore down her hem on that side of the dress and tore the lining from waist to hemline. She fought for her life and they then intercepted her and pointed something at her and she lost consciousness again. Um, next thing she knew, they had taken her into an examining room, not the same one that Barney was in. Uh, she was sitting in what is, is like some kind of very modern type of dentist chair, maybe, or a chaise lounge. She was kind of lying back. They took her shoes off. They were examining her toes uh, her fingers, uh, her joints, her bones, her muscles, even her nervous system eventually. They took a lot of samples. And then uh, they had her get up and they walked her to a table that was in the room, like sort of an examining table. And they had her get on the examining table. But before they did, the leader, uh, not the leader, I'm sorry, the examiner uh, tried to remove her dress and broke her zipper and tore out the stitching at the top of the zipper. And so she had to assist and the dress went and fell to the floor um, and she was on the examining table. She, uh, they pushed up her slip and uh, they didn't undress her completely. They just uh, pulled down her uh, pants, uh, underpants, and so to expose her navel. And uh, the examiner produced a very large needle that was attached to a tube. And she said, what do you intend to do with that? And he said to her telepathically, uh, but she heard it with an accent that uh, it was only uh, a simple test, something like a t pregnancy test. Well, this was 10 years before we were using amniocentesis right. in hospitals. And uh, she said, what do you want to do with that? He said, oh, I'm just going to put into your navel. It won't hurt. Don't worry. And she said, it will hurt. Don't do it. It will hurt. And he plunged it into her navel, causing so much pain that Dr. Simon decided to end the session early. Uh, she was writhing, and she said that it didn't feel like a needle. It felt more like a knife going into her. And when that occurred, the one that she called the leader, that we now know as the escort, who uh, experiencers feel very comfortable around. They uh, meet this person time and time again throughout their lifetime as they're taken. Well, this uh, individual did something around Betty's, the top of her head, her forehead and temples, and all of the pain went away. And she was very grateful for that. Uh, at, at a certain point, she asks the entities where they came from and they produced i guess it was a three-dimensional maybe a holographic star map uh, which betty was able to produce uh, and draw i guess after she came out of the regression correct that is correct uh, she remembered this when she was on the craft and so dr simon told her that if she could remember it accurately and if it didn't trouble her too much, that she should go home and sketch it. And she did. Um, over the next couple of weeks, and then she kept cop a copy for herself, and she had a copy for Dr. Simon. She had made many copies of it. And the way that she did that is she would, she drew the original, and then she taped it up to 
a window and she uh, just traced over what she had drawn originally. Because we didn't have Xerox machines back then. We right. didn't have copy machines. And so uh, that's what she did. There were two stars in the foreground that were about the size of, uh, oh, maybe one was a quarter and one was the size of a nickel. And then there were several smaller stars that were, I don't know, a little bit smaller than the point, the uh, an eraser on a pencil. And these were connected by solid lines. The two large stars in the foreground had five lines. Then there were other lines that uh, two and, and one had three. And then there were others as well, but these were connected by dotted lines. And then there were three that she remembered on the map that uh, were not connected by any lines at all. Well, what uh, she understood about this is that the solid lines were trade routes. The dotted lines were expeditions. And the ones that the dots that she put on the map uh, without lines were not places that they had ever uh, gone to, but were on that map. Hmm. So... Um, well, this, interesting. Yeah, this this so this map I guess is circulated. Eventually, it ends up in um, the sketch ends up in a book, the Interrupted Journey. That's correct. Where it's seen by an amateur astronomer, Marjorie Fish. Tell me what she did with that map. Well, Marjorie was skeptical. She was a uh, a member of Mensa and a teacher at the time, and she saw the map and she wondered if she would be able to find that place in our local galactic neighborhood out 54 light years. She went to the university and she uh, looked at the astronomical catalogs. She had to sit and hand copy all of the characteristics of the stars and uh, all of uh, the distance data that we had back in that time frame on the stars in our local galactic neighborhood. And then she went home and she constructed a model. In all, she ended up constructing 14 models over four years and she still didn't have a match. And then finally, a new catalog was released and she found a match for what Betty had sketched. Then the big problem was, how would she find any scientists who were willing to vet her work for accuracy? And she got in touch with Coral Lorenzen. Coral Lorenzen was the uh, director of, the, uh, of APRO the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. And Cora Lorenzen gave Stanton Friedman a call. And she, at that time, Stanton uh, was traveling to do some uh, lectures. He, uh, it was 1972, and he was uh, about to finish up his work as uh, a nuclear physicist who had to move once every three or four years to generally work on the same program, but it was taking place at a different uh, industrial site. And uh, he became so interested in craft that he decided to become a UFO lecturer. He called himself the flying saucer physicist. Mm -hmm. And there were many prominent scientists in that time frame with PhDs who uh, were speaking publicly, lecturing on radio and television shows, and writing books about uh, UFOs and their findings that they were indeed real. And so Stanton sort of fit right in. And uh, 
So Coral said, when you, when you, next time you go to Ohio to speak, would you please, if you can, stop and speak with Marjorie Fish because she has constructed these models and she thinks she has a match for Betty's star map. And so Stan did go to do a lecture and he did visit with Marjorie and he was able to find scientists who would vet Marjorie's work. And they said that it was accurate. Alan, Dr. Alan Hynek was one of them. And it, um, and it was, and it was a match with, with which st star system? Uh, well, there were several star systems there, but the two stars in the foreground are part of a star system called the net, Zeta Reticuli. And uh, they are seen only from the southern hemisphere in our world. And uh, so it would have been impossible for Betty to have known about this. Uh, she wasn't uh, even an amateur astronomer. And uh, so that was very interesting, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticulum. And uh, they, uh, Zeta-1 is 39.4 light years from our, from our sun. Zeta-2 is 39.5 light years. They're fairly close together, but they are an extraordinary distance away from each other. So they could have planets in a stable orbit. And uh, so in other words, capable of capable of uh, supporting life. Yes, possibly. Uh, we don't know yet because uh, we have not looked out into that portion of st of space for more than a few days. Uh, the astronomers did say that they found a large planet uh, rotating around one of these stars, but then they retracted that statement. Uh, the only way we can see a large planet that far away is that you just see like a little bit of a blip. Um, you, you really can't see the planet itself. You just know it's there uh, due to its rotation. And so um, that was, uh, they decided to retract the statement. I don't know why, if it was embarrassing because it attracted so much public attention or, or what, but they seem to shy away from things that people are interested in who are interested in UFOs. And so Marjorie did find, uh, identify the other stars on the map. And one of them is our sun. Ah, and, uh, fascinating. And, which is ten, uh, about 10 billion years old. But uh, Zeta Reticuli is uh, as much as 8 billion years older than our sun. Uh -huh. And uh, let's see. No, I'm wrong. Wait a minute. I'm wrong. The, our, our sun is about 4.6 billion years old. Yeah, so uh, I, I gave you the wrong data on that, but I gave you the correct data on Zeta Reticuli. Right, so it if there was old. life there, they had a, a bit of a head start on us here. Yes. Um, your, your, your uncle Barney died in 1969 of a brain hemorrhage. Yes, he did. Um, was he ever the same uncle that you remembered before September 19th, 1961? Did it, did it change him forever? He went back to being the, the fun, uh, really caring uh, old Barney that he had been after he worked through the trauma um, with Dr. Simon. But... It was fairly short-lived because there was a violation of confidentiality in 1965 that carried their story to the public. They, at that time, uh, Barney was, uh, had been appointed to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission He'd, uh, for the state of New Hampshire. He had uh, received an award from Sergeant Shriver for uh, the 
po through the poverty program and that Barney had been one of the individuals along with Betty who set up the Rockingham County Community Action Program. They were both actively involved in community fairs, doing good things for the public. And so absolutely, would they not want, you know, being civil rights uh, leaders at that time uh, and involved in the other activities, they would definitely not want their story to go public. But uh, also as a, as a uh, biracial couple uh, with enough, you know, pressure on them, the last thing they would have sought would be extra publicity. I think you're correct on that one as well. Uh, they did not want to draw them uh, attention to themselves, especially attention having to do with alien abduction. That was, you know, so much promoted as a kooky thing. Uh, even today, a lot of the public believes that anyone who believes that this happened to them, regardless of the amount of evidence, must be mentally ill. Right. Uh, they right. don't believe that it's even possible. Well, the point is they, they didn't seek out any publicity. They certainly didn't seek to profit from it. In, in fact, quite the contrary, uh, which again, just adds to the credibility. Uh, your Aunt Betty uh, lived to 2004, I guess. She died of, of cancer. Did she, yes. how did she, towards the end of her life, did she come to view this um, this incident in a different light? Did it, did it um, scar her for the rest of her life or? or traumatize her, or did she come to terms with it? I think that I have to give you a complex answer. Um, Betty felt that it was probably the most important experience of her lifetime. And when we asked her why, she said that she wouldn't have been able to meet the wonderfully interesting people that she met, if that had not happened, she would have just, you know, been a social worker for the state of New Hampshire, working in child welfare and adoption. She would have retired and, you know, have gone on with her other interests. She had many interests, but uh, she also, I think, was fearful. I remember one time when I was uh, interviewing her, she was very relaxed and uh, she wouldn't let me hypnotize her, but I, I was doing an interview just casually. And we got to the point, she wanted to tell the story the way she had always told it, not moment by moment. And I was insisting back up Betty I want I want to know what happened next and she became very frightened when I asked her to do that and she said I can't go on so I think that you know as with most people who have had this experience there is some underlying trauma she always had to have her shades or her blinds uh, closed at when the sky became dark and then opened in the morning when it was daylight. Uh, uh, I think that she was fearful that they were coming again. And I think that maybe they actually could have come again. And, uh, but so she had both sides, both uh, the feeling grateful that this had occurred uh, saying that there was no fear, yet exhibiting fear when I wanted to know details, and closing those blinds every night. Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, the 60th anniversary edition is, uh, well, its publication is imminent, right? A week or two, perhaps? Uh, yes, and I think that it's available on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble and uh, the Target store and uh, Walmart have uh, it for pre-order on their websites. And it's uh, also available or for pre-order on many other 
uh, online bookstores. I'm sure if you go into any bookstore and ask for it, uh, the 60th anniversary edition with updates. It's updated and has some new pictures in it and uh, a couple of new chapters, one on the scientific evidence that has been examined uh, with updated technology that we didn't have when we wrote the first book. And uh, also I wrote uh, a section on Stanton Friedman as well. So the, the book is available. You can also purchase it for me. I already have some. If you live in the United States, it's too expensive to mail it to Canada. You'd be paying 50 or $60 for the book. But in the United States, uh, you can order an autographed copy from me, and it includes the, the price of shipping in the $23 price. It's $18.99 retail. And that's Kathleen hyphenmarden.com that's correct kathleen hyphen marden m-a-r-d-e-n.com oh wow what a pleasure kathleen uh fascinating and here we are 60 years later in uh, and still obviously so much to learn about what happened yes absolutely and that's why i have devoted my life to this, uh, you know, it started with Betty and Barney's experience, but it moved on to thousands of other experiencers around the world in my search for the answer. Well, thank or you. I say answers. <laughs> thank you so much for this, and uh, we'll talk soon on Coast to Coast. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. It was nice talking with you. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.